Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Manuel Lima. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, named one of the 50 most creative and influential minds by Creativity Magazine. He's the founder of VisualComplexity.com, author of three best-selling books, and head of design at Interos.ai. He's a respected design leader and startup mentor and a regular lecturer at conferences around the world. Manuel has 15 plus years of experience designing and leading product teams at companies like Google, Microsoft, Nokia, and RGA. He loves big ideas and ambitious projects. He believes in the explosive mix of grit, talent, and optimism. He grows smart and talented teams through empowerment and autonomy, mentoring and inspiration, and let's not forget fun and passion. It's my pleasure to welcome Manuel Lima to the deep dive. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Philip, and thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, this has been a conversation that has been on my radar for a while. Like I told you when we started communicating, I've been a big fan of your work, your your concepts around visualizing complexity. Nature has, has long been an inspiration to me, which is ironic because I am a city kid, as we've been discussing kind of offline. But I found in my later years that a, a deep connection to nature, despite growing up among concrete and steel, has been uh, has become increasingly important. So your work around the visualization of trees and it's everything about so many of the things that you've done has been important. So having an opportunity to to talk about your latest work, the new designer, rejecting myths, embracing change, has been one that I've really been looking forward to. So given all the work that you've done, the books that you've written, the clients that you work with, why at this moment did you want to sort of almost, it feels like retrospectively look at your career in design and design more generally and think about it as a practice and a discipline? That's a good, that's a good one. That makes me think. I also feel a little bit like what you said about nature, like the, the older I get, the more connected I feel to it. And it's, it's somehow funny. I was reading this quote the other day. Uh, we spent half of our lives wanting to be a grown up or trying to be a grown up. And then the rest of our lives trying to be a kid again. Right. <laughs> and I feel like I'm in the second half already, like entering the second half, but I'm trying to like just connect to like my, you know, my infancy and that sort of love for nature and being outside. And uh, I grew up in a, this pristine island of, of São Miguel in the Azores, which is like this group of islands between uh, America and Europe. And I think growing up, I wanted to be a grown up, but I want also I wanted to have everything that I didn't have. I wanted the big city, the you know the, all the the concrete and the glass, the buzz, that energy. And now as I get older, I want to kind of like go back. It's like a full circle, right? So that's definitely a component. And, and answering your question more specifically, I think for me, roughly five years ago, as I turned 40, 
I went through a little bit of a crisis, even though I don't like the word crisis. I think it's a, you know, a midlife reflection, I would call it better. It's really, I see it in a very positive life in the sense that it's an opportunity for you to, uh, you know, look inwards into what you want to be doing with the rest of your life, things that you like doing, things you don't like doing. I remember five years ago, I even wrote my my sort of mission statement as if, as if I was a brand, as if I was a company, right? As designers quite often do for, for companies. But in this case, I was creating my own personal mission statement. And uh, that actually helped me focus quite a lot. And, uh, and during this, this uh, process of introspection, I also was thinking about me as a designer, as a professional, and the discipline itself, the practice, what has changed you know, in my 15 plus years of working as a designer for companies large like Google's and Microsoft's and Nokia's, but also many small startups. And how the craft itself was changing, how the discipline was changing, and how the methodology and thinking was changing over those last few decades. And I did you know, see many cases where design really made a difference in many of the places that I worked at. But I could also witness where design often felt short from its ambition of you know, having this positive impact in the world. And I was very interested in, in why. You know, why are designers more frequently than not somehow failing to meet their high aspirations, right? All the aspirations they have for you know, making a better world. And I think that's kind of how the book started. Some of the early ideas were about uh, trying to answer that question. And then it evolved in different ways, as you know, a book always evolves in a, in a myriad of ways. Uh, in the early days, the book was meant to be kind of following the model of uh, a letter to a younger version of myself, like letters to a young designer, sort of a, a model. But then it, it sort of morphed into this like nine myths that I go after in, in the book itself. And, you know, when I was going through the book, the, the myths almost seemed like design could be a metaphor for some larger societal conversations because some of the myths that I that I saw that you were highlighting they seem to be part of the the writ large way in which our society tends to to work and you know one of them is this idea of well I'll use two of them and sort of juxtapose them you you talk around Perfection is one of them, like coming up with this, the perfect idea, the perfect product. Meritocracy, two things very linked together. And then on the back end, there's the designer as a hero, right? The, the very popular individual hero story. And as I, as I looked at those kind of from two opposite ends, I thought to myself, this seems like the ideas of capitalism kind of baked in there, right? Just by default. And I thought to myself, as someone who critiques capitalism on the show all the time. <laughs> as you should. <laughs> so I, I feel like people who listen are like, damn, again? But it comes up naturally. Like, I don't do this. It comes up naturally. But you did a very skillful job, I think, of, I don't even think you name it, right? But I took it to say, like, so many of these things are like the operating system. Oh, I love that. I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. Given that, I want to get your reflections on how much of this you saw as design specific, how much you saw as design within a capitalist system, or how much of it's just 
the capitalist system and then everything sort of flows from that to whatever extent that makes sense or is a metaphor that tracks in the way you were thinking about it. Yeah, no, that's such a great and profound question, Philip. I, I really appreciate the way you framed it. I think you're right to a certain degree, but I, I think there's another layer which has been there from the beginning, which is cognitive biases. The book is filled with notions of, and that's actually one of my favorite subjects. Actually, my favorite Wikipedia page, I'm going to sound very geeky, it's, it's called A List of Cognitive Biases. And what I love about that page specifically is that, well, first of all, it portrays we are all alike, no matter where we were born, the color of our skin, what gender we have. These are shared universal biases and triggers that we share in our own brain. That's one element that I love about cognitive biases. They are truly universal. The second aspect that I love is that it tells us that we are flawed. We are far from being perfect. <laughs> we are a mess inside each of us, right? And it's just a, an outcome of evolution, right? So a lot of the things that you mentioned from perfectionism, you know, the, the reliance on the hero journey, like finding these like hero people that will save us from the mundane. But also I talk about things like presentism, like our bias for the present, right? Ignoring the past practices or looking at them as like primitive or like outdated and not really caring deeply about the future. We're really, really focused on the present. Also, techno-optimism, right? This idea that technology will save us. So the book is filled with these biases that all of us share, irrespectively of whether or not we are a designer or an engineer or, or a lawyer, right? All of us share these biases. So I think the book starts by understanding what designers, what are they thinking, what are they doing, how they are reacting to the world around them, because we are just one. All of us share these biases in our inside our own brain, right? So in many ways, I think these are, again, universal certain of cognitive triggers. But then I focus specifically on how these biases affect designers more specifically and the design practice, right, more specifically as well. And how those could also explain why we are not doing enough. In this case, I focus very much on the design community. Why are we not doing enough to, you know, for the world? Why are we failing to meet society demands and environmental demands that we need to face, right? I, I agree in, in that respect. I think there are like many, many similarities. I'm, I'm not an expert on the cognitive biases portion of that. I do remember a very good business school class that I took when we first started. Managerial effectiveness was dealt with all of that. And it was, looking back on it, it was the best class I probably took in all of business school, despite the fact that by and large, all of us made fun of it at the time because we were dumb and didn't realize that psychology and dealing with human beings is the most important thing that we could be doing regardless yes. of our of our ultimate discipline absolutely oh you you you're so right Phil I mean to be honest like just to to sorry to interrupt but I, I no go for it go for it well I would add to this and I talk of, about this extensively in the book that if there is a gap in design education today I think the major gap is ethics well that's one of them right I look back at my early years you know as an undergrad, with students studying industrial design, phys building physical products. And I wondered why, you know, I would look at friends of mine who were studying law or medicine. And, you know, these are fields of study that are very deep. And, you know, it's really, they have a strong foundation in uh, deontology and, and ethics. And why do designers and architects, as primary shapers of our material culture, like everything we see around us, for the most part, has been sort of designed and projected? Why are we not, why don't we have actually this concern for ethics, you know, and, and more responsibility or, 
on the things we actually get to put out in the world. That always struck me as like really uh, kind of baffling, right? And to this day, we still see a variety of design programs lacking ethics, a strong ethical sort of program. But to your point, I think psychology, cognitive science is another huge blind spot for many designers, which how can you do that? I mean, for the most part, designers are designing something for the fellow human being. So understanding the human brain is absolutely paramount in, in my view. And of course, the, the third obvious gap is uh, ecology. Still today, we, we don't actually see that frame of reference and study like present in, in many design programs and curriculums. And I think that gives us a, a chance to continue on that vein of, you know, the sameness versus the differences, right? Because I, I do agree as a species, humans, we do have a lot in common, but we also do have, I think, some differences in the way we view the world, right? And if we separate them out through sort of geopolitical lens, right? The Western world versus like the global South and those sort of, you know, first world versus third world, these ones that are outmoded and ones that are most relevant. It does strike me that the notion of the hero journey feels to me from both my reading and my lived experience, far more of a, of a Western conceit than a global South conceit. And communities in like me being black, I think about, you know, so much of our experiences, if only for survival, are relying on people in deep community with one another, right? So everyone is kind of designing a life for themselves to kind of use that, the design word, because they had no other choice. So in Jim Crow America, a Black Americans had to literally design an entire way of being because they were excluded from the other way of being. And that involved like community, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, I feel like the hero's journey isn't exclusively a Western thing, but to the extent that it is spreading as a, as a, as a cultural narrative, it feels to me an export into many other communities. So I'm curious how design can wrestle with knowing these different types of ways that people think. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, well, that's a, a really deep question as well, Philip. That that really makes me think. D deep questions is the name, man. The name of the show. <laughs> oh my mind! I forgot. I'm <laughs> This is perfect. what this is what we do. These are not softballs. I'm relying on on you, big brains. To I help love me. it. This, this is what I do, man. It's like, I read these books and I'm like, okay, y'all are smart. Y'all have figured this out. Help me. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So that's a, a good question. I, I think I, I talk a little bit in the, in the book about that, but I think you're right. You know, I, I did a couple of weeks ago, I did a retreat, like this like meditation retreat. And it was like sort of a fairly surreal kind of transformative experience for me. And I remember it was not just like the, the meditation on its own, just like looking inwards deeply into your, yourself, but it was like almost like the, the social therapy that happens in those settings, like the sense of the community. That, and we were often sitting in a circle and sharing stuff that's very sort of deep and meaningful to each one of us. And as I was talking to one of the facilitators, I was saying, you know, when was the last time you did that? You know, maybe at school, if you were lucky, Right. I mean, it's there's no comparison to anything like that. You don't do that with your friends. You don't do that in a corporate environment. Yes, you see it might maybe in a circle, but it's a very tense, you know, fear-inducing type of environment, far from like being a safe uh, a safe place. 
So we, we kind of lost this, this notion of sharing freely with others, the sense of community, the sense of belonging to each other, but also to nature. And I think what worries me, and I talk a, a little bit about this in the book, is our individualism is actually growing. And I think that's not just, unfortunately, just a Western problem and that's a Western issue. I think it's really growing. It's actually correlated with like developed countries. The more developed you are, the more individualistic of society you end up getting. So every time I see like these like new glasses, you know, that Apple just created and all of those things, I worry like really crazy because I think it's alienating people even more than they should be from what truly matters, you know, each other and, and nature, where we are becoming so far and so detached, alienated from, from reality. And I think that's the worst path we can make, the worst path we can take. So I, I'm very against a lot of these new developments, uh, technology-wise, to be honest. So how can design surface this? I talk a little bit about this in, in my last chapter. I think often is being more inclusive, Design is not just one element. Design is truly universal, and the universal is our globe, as far as we know it, right? So that means understanding all the developments that happen around the world from a design standpoint and be open to those voices that haven't been heard in the past or continue not being here, heard in the present, right? So I give examples of like looking at indigenous communities, for example, as a means of learning so much from living a symbiotic life with nature. I talk about these like tribes in, in India who built bridges that are actually alive, which is incredible through the work of, of Lotac. That's beautiful, like this Australian designer that created this incredible book uh, by Tashin. So there's so many examples like that. And fortunately today, there's been a lot of books also giving voice to misrepresented groups in the past, either women or people of color in the past. So I think design, we have to be open. It's We have to decolonize design as we have to decolon decolonize the future. And I give this to the decolonized design, you know, is pretty much what I'm telling you, like really embracing all points of view, right? Both from the past and the present. That's the only way for design to live on. We cannot continue designing in this ivory tower anymore. It doesn't make any sense. But I think the deco the, the aspect of decolonizing the future is also really interesting. It's a quote that I have in the book, uh, whose name I forgot, but it, he says that we keep treating the future as this colonial outpost that we don't really care, which you know goes back to your point about how this is so ingrained and how sometimes the Western world has used the hero journey and other human biases in their own advantage, right? And this is one where you know we treat the colonial outpost as we're going to save them, like the whole missionary, like think about the old missionary idea is that we're going to save them. You know, it needs to be saved, you or them, right? Seriously. <laughs> but here we are, like, being very arrogant to the point that we actually think we know Bass and we're just going to save someone else from whatever. And those and those missionaries are still around. <laughs> those missionaries are still around trying to save. And, uh, They're still around trying sure. to find <laughs> uncharted territory to, sure. to infect. Right? Exactly. They hide in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> and so he mentions that, again, we, we, we keep dumping problems where we don't see them, right? He, out there in the future as we as if it was like a, a colonial outpost that we don't really care about and so this idea of decolonizing the, this design and also decolonizing the future is absolutely paramount for design to grow up and mature as as a discipline i would say absolutely and, and you mentioned that you brought into play the ecological perspective and you know i had in my notes like like ethics and psychology and i was going to ask like why are those missing and we've, we've kind of touched on that sort of organically in the conversation, but 
ecology is a is a really interesting one because when I think about, you know, you hear these terms like human-centered design and humanity-centered design, I've used those terms as well, right? And then as I've thought more about it, come in contact with more people, it's kind of, I realized that I understand the, the virtue of going in that direction, but then it leaves out the balance of the planet that is alive, right? And it, and it puts a preeminence on the human experience relative to other experiences on the planet, right? And, you know, when you start to introduce these ideas, you know, a lot of folks kind of look at you like, okay, you're crazy, right? Like, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, how you think bringing in or embracing a more ecological perspective can also work towards some of these myths that you discuss, particularly the myth of perfection, right? Because nature, meaning like how we traditionally think of it, is imperfectly perfect. Perfect, yes. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely makes sense. Yeah. You know, grass isn't meant to grow in this like, you know, manicured lawn thing that we do, right? But those things are considered to be perfect by controlling nature, right? And we subscribe to that in so many ways. So I'm curious how, to what extent you think the ecological could start to solve for our human enthrallment with perfection. Oh, well, so maybe I can start talking about the, the whole idea of, of perfectionism first. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and then go back to, to your point about, uh, about how can we sort of address the ecology aspect of it, right? I think that's, that's really interesting. So the so wabi-sabi, you're probably familiar with the term, but wabi-sabi is like this Japanese tradition based in, in Buddhism. And what I love about it is that it talks exactly about to your point, the perfect imperfectibility of things. And the more of nature we know and understand, there's an abundance of that of wabi-sabi. And here we are, humans, imperfect as we are, trying to create something that nature has never created, which is like this ultimate perfection and order, right, in the chaos. And I think all the examples so far that we have, or most of the examples of that attempt have somehow failed. And I think what I tackle a lot in the first chapter is how much of that attempt is causing depression, anxiety, stress, uh, frustration on so many designers because they're really trying to attain the unattainable and missing the point that the journey is the most beautiful thing. It's not really reaching perfection. I think there's actually a, a Salvador Dali quote. It's you're never going to reach perfection, you know, but it's all about the journey on, on how to get there. So I think my first chapter is really about demystifying this this need for creating a perfect thing. Because it doesn't first of all, it doesn't exist. And I talk about other benefits that you should consider, like creating many instead of one, right? Embracing imperfection, right? Being, being, being vulnerable. And I see this all the time with designers that they get overly attached to one single early idea and they get stuck to it. They don't really move on to anything. And that first initial idea becomes an anchor to continue perfecting it instead of exploring many ideas, right? In the in early stage, you should go as broad as possible. It's the diversity of thought. It's the the, the multitude of ideas that will actually help you find the, the, the right one, not sticking to the same one and through confirmation bias, find validation in endless cycles of, of you know, fake reassurance to yourself. So I think that is something of a myth that we need to to sort of unpack and for our own sanity, for the, the, own, the own mental sanity of many designers, unfortunately. 
to the point of, of ecology and human-centered design, it's really funny. Like when I was doing my second book, The Book of Trees, I did a lot of research, as you know, on ancient tree diagrams. And one of the ones, one of the most common models that I've encountered back in the medieval in medieval Europe was what's known as scala natura, this the the scale, the the nature of being, or the, there was like it goes by different names. But it's basically hierarchical conception of the world where in which God is normally at the top, if this is like a religious depiction, then you have humans, then you have the species that humans consider to be <laughs> at the top somehow, and then you go on and on and on, and probably the last layer are like insects, right? So it's, ve- it's this very sort of uh, anthropomorphic, very hierarchical way of looking at the world which I actually despise considerably because, again, it doesn't really consider how the world and the planet and all of us interspecies are immensely interconnected in, in a variety of different ways. So, and of course, the, the chapter is called, you know, now my first chapter is from, from, from trees to, to, to networks because I think networks are a much, a much better model to understand, you know, the diversity and complexity of, of the world. So human-centered design, in many ways, I feel percolates this notion of putting humans at the center or humans at the top of this chain or this pyramid or whatever you want to call it, or tree. And when instead it's missing out the myriad of interactions we have with other species, with the planet, and between humans, right? So how can we solve this? I think we need to abandon a lot of these outdated models that we have. What I mean by that is... I give the example of the double diamond, one of the most popular models, but it's just one. To be honest, like any model or most of, of a wide percentage of, of the creation models around the, the design process itself, normally you have some research, you understand the problem, then you create something and then you deliver. Most models, that's the end of the work of a designer. As soon as you launch this, as soon as you finish this solution, you deliver it to a client, to a customer, the stakeholder, that's it. You wash your hands and then you jump to the next project. And with the end of your work, it ends your responsibility as well. Who cares if this is going to serve any purpose and if it's going to help anyone or be positive? My work is done. And I think that really is tremendously responsible and problematic. So we need to really understand what happens post-launch, right? It's not really about launching something. It's about how it lands, right? Understanding the landing and evaluating the landing we cannot afford more solutions, you know, launched into this like vacuum of consequences. It's just tremendously responsible and the world cannot take this any longer. So I think elongating this journey, understanding really the full journey, understanding nature as the ultimate stakeholder, because whatever you do, if it's a chair, if it's a mobile app, your customer will only be a transient user of that experience, right? Many of the things you're creating, either digital or physical, would outlive your end user would outlive your customer by sometimes centuries in the environment, in the planet, in a landfill somewhere. So to ignore that, I think it's one of the most irresponsible things. So we have to really elongate that like post-launch journey and think about nature as your ultimate stakeholder. That brings me to an, another point you have in the book where you talk about impact, right? And impact is this word much like design, that is that has started to, well, not started to, but it has permeated many different fields and, and, and disciplines in the sense that, you know, I used to work in finance primarily and impact investing is now a term, right? Like philanthropy, regardless of where, what type of philanthropy you're doing, 
when you're in front of your funders or whatever, they're going to ask you like, well, what's going to be the impact of, of what you're doing, right? So it's this word that is now gone everywhere. And you talk about impact in the book, and it made me think about my own reflections around impact and timelines, right? That we are, to your point, looking at things in such a snapshot that it is very hard to deliver an answer to impact in a way that in my mind makes sense, right? Because the the long tail of something is is just that. Like how does one how does one know and by what standard are we measuring the impact of something? Right. So I'm curious about your your thoughts about about that, particularly as we wrestle with that perfection piece, right? And the responsibility piece. No, you're right. I mean, sometimes it takes time. It takes time for us to evaluate the impact of something, right? For me, yeah, I think impact can also be an overused term. For me, impact is about the landings. We're just talking about launching something, put something into the world. But for me, it's about the landing. How it lands, where it lands, right? And how is it actually benefiting someone, either society or the environment, in a substantial way, right? You should care about that. But to your point, I think it's sometimes it's harder right? Because it takes time to evaluate the proper impact. Sometimes it takes years. But I don't think that should be an excuse not to care at all, as we are doing today. We are oblivious. So many designers today say, you know, I want to have a positive impact in the world. And yet they are working in cultures, and sometimes it's not entirely their fault, but either consciously or unconsciously, they really don't see the impact. They don't see where it lands. They just keep on launching these things again out into the thin air, and expecting it to land somewhere, but they don't see it. They don't care at times, or they are just too busy to care, right? And But that shouldn't be an excuse. We have to care. And sometimes, yeah, it takes years, but, but also it can be really quick. For example, today we are creating so many apps that are used by, at times, billions of people. And as soon as you do like a feature launch, right, a given change in the app application, it's, it's done. It's updated. Billions of people are using and there's already a lot of research that, are, that is using uh, that's looking deeply into all, a lot of these uh, applications, the effect that they have on the human mind and the human brain. And sometimes you don't take, you don't need years to evaluate the, the impact. You can see how it is tremendously addictive, right? How it is tremendously causing, you know, depression, you know, rates of suicide. So just look at the numbers and yeah, maybe you were actually part of this. Maybe you were actually involved. And guess what? You can actually make a change. You can actually change the, this course. You don't have to continue to go doing, going on that path. I 100% agree. I joke, but I'm kind of serious. Like I am um, a Luddite. I am not a technological person. It's a miracle that I'm getting all this to work right now, right? Like, <laughs> you know, the fact that I've been able to get this technology to function for 100 plus episodes of this show is a, a miracle, miracle for anyone who knows me really, really well. But I I do feel a ubiquity, but not an inevitability to so many of the things that are around us, right? And I don't want to lay it all on technology, right? Because it's it's not all technology. But when you talk about these apps being used by billions of people, that ubiquity that I just discussed also feels invisible, which can feel inevitable, even though I don't think it is, right? Mm -hmm. And, And what I mean by that is like, whether it's Instagram or Uber Eats, there's an invisibility to the effect of these things, 
right? Like if I want my tacos delivered, right? Or pizza or whatever the fuck it is. I'm not overly thinking about the delivery person and all of the wage suppression and inequity that are driven by that app, right? And then something like an Instagram, and again, I'm old, so I'm just using what I know, right? Like I'm sure there's some new shit out there that people are using, you know, people using these filters to kind of change how they look and sort of everybody wants to look like a condensed Kardashian, right? Right, Like that's the standard now, right? Of this sort of like plasticky porcelain thing, right? As someone who doesn't use those things, I can look at them and say, uh, this kind of sucks, right? Like when did this become the thing? But fighting that ubiquity of it is a worthwhile fight, but it's a challenging fight, right? Like how does one, you know, if you're on that team yeah. outside of like putting in the thing that breaks, you know, Instagram at some point, <laughs> like the Death Star, right. like you're like, oh, I put in a, a, a little trick, it'll crash, right? right? Like unless you're that person, it kind of feels like, hmm, what do you do? I mean, so I, I think what I would argue, Philip, is because of its ubiquity, it's one more reason where we should be paying a very, very attentive eye on it. We should be really paying attention to what they're doing. And it, it's not the case. Can you imagine the power of you doing something or updating an app and, and that app, which influences your behavior, no matter what, being seen by, let's say, one billion people? It's like one eighth of the world. Like This is a power that no one has ever, no one has ever had before. Right? No, like evil mind of any type in the past has had this much power if they wanted to control like eight, you know, one billion human beings around the planet. It's an incredible power. And yet, this incredible power is not meeting enough responsibility or ethical concerns, nor are our legislators actually caring enough to regulate it because they have a free right on doing whatever they want to do, doing whatever dark pattern they want to do for the most part. Yes, you see some movement, European Union, and maybe even the U.S. Congress is waking up, but it's still like way behind on what technology is already doing. So I think that ubiquity, the fact that we can reach so many people, requires a, 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 a tremendous amount of responsibility, which they don't have at the moment, and a tremendous amount of like attentive life by our legal system as well. Now, notice uh, what you were saying about the invisible and the immaterial. I, I completely agree with you. And I wonder how much of that is actually a technique for them to do what they do constantly, right? It's almost like a Trojan horse because you don't see it. It's kind of like, ah, oh, you know, it's, 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 how can it be bad for anything? Because it's invisible, it's material. And I, I actually fight against this and uh, the, the myth of that the, the digital will save us because I feel the digital, the idea of the digital is normally taken by people as this sort of very benign, you know, force. Like take the cloud, for example, the cloud. When you think about the cloud, if you were to explain the cloud, what it is, it sounds it's like very kind of fluffy, very safe, very benign thing that happens somewhere in, in space. When in fact, the cloud is like massive, like buildings, you know, consuming a tremendous amount of energy. If the internet was, was a country, we'd like, I think the fourth biggest pollutant, right? So the cloud has a huge expanse on the planet. Is is and it's not at all when we think about uploading things to the cloud or this idea, this technical optimist idea that the digital will save us. I think it's a bunch of BS, and I think we should really be aware of all the things that people are trying to do beyond our backs and be very acutely aware of of all these 
tricks and gimmicky things that they do to perceive us, to, to influence us. And it's also the story, right? Like when a lot of the story kind of goes back to those individual things that you talked about, right? The notion of an Uber or an Airbnb and things like that was, oh, you could be your own boss. Yes. You're no longer tethered to like the corporate world. Like you can, you have your own destiny, right? And and that's <laughs> liberating. A, yeah. yeah, that's an old story, right? That's yeah. the that's the colonial story, right? That look, the wilderness is out there. The wilderness. The wilderness. There, yeah. There's humans there with civilizations and societies, but it's wilderness. Go out there, right? Go west, young man, and boom. You have all these things that obscure not only what we've already discussed, but the story becomes a seductive one, right? Like, oh, I could just drive my Uber and hustle and make money and then pour that into something else. And I'm not on Instagram because of I'm an I'm an influencer, right? Like, right, 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 right. So these stories, like, I think design has an opportunity, and you're and you're doing this with your work to not only create things but also create a different story right absolutely. right so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about about that piece of it and i'm keeping an eye on the time so um, um so what do you think about that one then i'm going to get you for one more and then we'll be we'll be able to wrap yeah well i i think design is ultimately about storytelling which which is great because like for me i i normally say that i'm a designer and a writer but a writer came much earlier than design for me. I was a writer way before I was a designer, or I was even planning to becoming a designer. And I find design to be appealing because it's just, I see it as just another form of storytelling. And as with any type of storytelling, it can also be biased, right? As it often is. And it can be political as it often is. The same thing with technology. Technology is never neutral. Design is never neutral. So what my encouragement to people as they read the book is that, hey, every choice matters. Your voice matters. So everything you do matters. Don't feel like, you know, I'm fighting against capitalism and what can a single designer do, right? Every single, every single social movement has started with one single idea, right? One single person trying to make a change. So it's not impossible. We've seen it happen like many times in our past. So I don't, I don't buy this like very sort of deterministic thing of like, oh, we, we cannot really change the, the course of progress. No, I think there's, we have to pay attention to the things that are being done. And we designers, as again, the primary shapers of our material culture and digital culture, have an extra layer of, of responsibility and we should act on it and not be afraid and, or, or be ignorant about it or pretending not to see it. I think that's tremendously irresponsible. Because I, as I say, it's too easy to point the finger at you know, what could possibly be the more uh, culprits when it comes to the design world, like the industrial designers or the fashion designers, the ones that are actually building a lot of tangible, physical things. But digital designers are equally to blame. We just talked about the cloud. Google estimates that every single search you make on a device is the equivalent of having a light bulb uh, be uh, light up for 17 seconds. Now imagine like how many searches you do in a single day and how many designers work on more engagement, more searches, more this, more that. And all of that is paying a price. And it's paying a price in electricity consumption, energy consumption, and the environment is also paying for all of that. And those searches are trash. Like, yes. the internet, it might work faster. <laughs> but let me tell you, the, our version of the internet sucks. 
<laughs> like I, I long for the days of AOL dial-up and using like Netscape web crawler. Like I felt like I got more and better information back then than I get now. The first, so the first five or six things I pull up are ads. No matter oh, yeah, what I'm looking for, God. it's an ad. We are living in this like completely like shopping mall experience, just yeah. pretending not to, right? Constant, and the Instagram is becoming another shopping mall experience. It's just yeah. like annoying as hell. And here, and here we are happy that they're actually providing these services for free when they're not. First of all, they are inundating the, our, our daily lives with ads, and they are actually using our data to run ads on our own and to like sell our data to third parties. It's like, we're not, this is not free. We're actually paying very costly with our own specifically habits. A heavy, heavy price. You A know? heavy, heavy price. I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to do the drop and then we'll be done design as something that is intradisciplinary. I want to give you a chance to speak on that because you, throughout the book, you cite and refer to so many different types of people, so many different types of minds and books and works. And that's been consistent in your work, not just this book. Mm -hmm. And the academic portions of our study, design is not the only one. I was a finance guy, same thing, tends to be more narrow. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to speak to the importance of thinking more broadly, being intradisciplinary in the way we look at things. And then we'll get to the final part of the show, which is just, we're going to do just the drop, which is any recommendation at all that you want to give to our listeners. And I give one as well. So first the question, then the drop. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, I like to say, Philip, that I even though I'm a designer, I don't have a ton of design books. And I could actually go over my library that you, you get to see behind me. And I do not have that many design books because I think you can learn so much more from other disciplines. And I'm reading to things like history and geography, cartography, evolution, you name it. So many other topics that are really interesting to me. And um, I find that tremendously more valuable because if anything, especially now with the advent of intelligence, you know, artificial intelligence and so on, I think treating humans as Ottomans that are highly specialized in just doing one single thing is not the way to go. I think the generalist path is a much more appealing one to me personally and to humankind, where we actually know a little bit of everything. And I think we should go back to this idea of the polymath as we had in medieval times, where you have this really, again, you don't need to know deeply all these concepts. It's like knowing a little bit of everything. But then, because you know so many, you can actually correlate them. And then a sparkle of like an idea comes from elements that are not normally touching, all of a sudden touching each other. That's where the spark of creativity can come. It never happens in a monoculture. One of the things that I do not like at all is the idea of a monoculture, right? It's the idea of an echo chamber of people talking to themselves, to others, but as if they were talking to themselves. So academia, unfortunately, it's still very much about that model of like an echo chamber where designers only talk to designers, designers only like show their work to designers. And then they leave the universe is like, whoa, there's a whole different world out there. And I have to explain what design is in the first place <laughs> to someone who has never even heard about it. And they get really frustrated and aggravated. It's like, yes, that's the real world. <laughs> the, the whole world is not designers. So I think academia has a tremendous way to go in embracing that diverse sort of pluralistic thought experiences that it should be all about. And instead, and I actually see 
a lot of universities becoming even stronger echo chambers than they were in the past, you know, rejecting ideas, as you probably are aware, like, you know, banning speakers, just because what, it doesn't conform to their own predefined idea of concept of what it is or what people should talk about in the public space. That's not what a university should be about. If anything, we should be going in the whole opposite direction of like truly becoming as far away from a monoculture as we can. Yes, you know, a design school, of course, teaches design primarily. But if you are a designer, you should be exposed to all the design crafts and, and processes and, and disciplines from a, a very early age. Because guess what? That could actually make your success as a professional uh, much more evident. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. We got to open up. No, no pun intended, the aperture of how we're thinking about things. Um, yes. So I want to I want to use just a couple more minutes to do the drop. And like I said before, the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our, our listeners. It can be one thing, two things. My drop is very simple. It's not of a specific book or, or piece of work as I typically would do. My drop is to encourage people to get into the kitchen and to cook. <laughs> and, and work more with food. I, I love to cook. It's a big part of, of my family experience. And I love to cook for friends and, and do dinner parties and have people over. And I meet increasingly more and more people who cook less, watch more cooking shows, but cook less. And that's really weird to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to encourage folks to like make simple things. Like it doesn't need to be this Michelin star thing. Make something that you love, that you care about, and you'd be surprised at how comforting and relaxing it is. Open a bottle of wine or, or whatever, put on some music. Cooking is amazing. I don't know why people feel it's such a chore. I, I love yeah. it. So that's my drop to cook. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and so a drop from you, my friend. A drop from me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, Could be I, anything. I, I th- and, you know, like I think nature, like the, this connection to nature, I, I love that you mentioned food because I think it, it goes back to this like communal experience, right? Uh, I think food is really about love the way that I see it. You normally, if you're cooking for someone else, it's really a, a sign of, of love and affection and you really and care. And I feel we are becoming, again, talking, going back to this whole growth in individualism in, and individualistic behavior. I find we are becoming more and more disconnected of each other, but also disconnected from nature. So my drop is to, A, there's nature everywhere. No matter where you live, there's always a park nearby. There's a tree somewhere close by. Just take time in your day to reconnect with nature and better things will come your way. Um, either hug a tree, lie down and do like a 10 meditation uh, session in the grass somewhere like just reconnect with nature because we all one at the end of the day, we all part of this world and it's the only world that we know that life exists and we should embrace it. And you're going to feel much happier as, as an individual. I couldn't agree with you more. I promised you four o'clock. I didn't quite get you there, (laughs) but, um, Brother, I, I couldn't ask for a, a better conversation partner. Like I said, I've loved your work for a long time. So thanks for being on the deep dive with me. And I really appreciate you, man. Well, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your summer and all those good things. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, 
and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.